Hello, and thanks for tuning in to another episode of The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America, featuring today's top directors sharing behind-the-scenes stories of their latest films and insights into the craft of directing. Please take a second to subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts. This episode takes us behind the scenes of director Scott Byrne's new thriller, The Report. The film tells the true story of Senate staffer Daniel Jones, who is tasked by his boss, Senator Dianne Feinstein, to lead an investigation of the CIA's detention and interrogation program created in the aftermath of 9-11. His relentless pursuit of the truth uncovers the lengths the nation's top intelligence agency went to to destroy evidence, subvert the law, and hide a shocking secret from the American public. In addition to the report, Mr. Burns' directorial credits include the movie for television Plutonium 239, episodes of the miniseries The View From Here and The Loudest Voice, and an episode of the series Californication. Following a recent screening of the film at the DGA Theater in Los Angeles, Mr. Burns spoke with director David McKenzie about filming the report. Listen on for their spoiler-filled conversation. Good evening, everybody. Uh, can we uh, all say congratulations to Scott on a really, really lovely movie? Thank you. Thanks, David. Thank you all for coming. Uh, a, a, a great movie in very many ways, uh, and, and I, I don't really know where to start, but I, I guess the, the sort of subject itself is probably the thing that, uh, that you started with. Um, and it, maybe it would be interesting to talk about how you take something that is so grounded in reality and dramatize it and what you do to that reality in the process of dramatizing it and how you sort of you, you, you pay as much uh, heed and credence as you can to, to the reality. You know, I think when I started working on this, I was really fascinated by the psychologists um, and, and I had every intention of writing a film I was going to focus on them, but as I started doing research, I kept bumping up, you know, against the fact that so much was classified, and I couldn't really learn that much about them. And in the spirit of full disclosure, both my parents are psychologists, so um, you know, when I found out that these guys claimed to have figured out a way to weaponize psychology, um, I don't, maybe I, you know, maybe my parents were doing the same thing. I don't know, um, but. I um, I started there, but I hit a, a dead end, and then the report came out um, about three or four months into my research, and I read it, and I was able to get a hold of the, the, the guy, Daniel Jones, who Adam plays in the movie, and we started having conversations, and I kept learning about it, and sort of the decision that I made was that whatever was about the program, I had to take, if I could, whole cloth from the report because I wanted to have the same veracity that in the same approach that he had, but that I also realized I had to create a character for Adam to play that was sort of a tracer bullet through the system. And those were sort of the two kind of guiding principles for, for constructing this. What? What level of fictionalization is there? Is it you, have, have you amalgamated things? Have you, or is this really pretty much a verbatim thing? I mean, it was an act of compression more than invention in a lot of ways. You know, this was seven years of a person's life, and 
so you had to squeeze it down. The other thing that was really challenging was it was a 26-day shoot. And so asking an actor to go through all of those changes in 26 days was a lot. And, you know, asking someone, you know, Annette and Adam to do six pages a day uh, was, you know, it sort of informed all of our other decisions. If you know that's your schedule, then that really becomes your master Um and so there was, there were choices that that sort of forces upon you. I mean, in development, we were asked initially the the movie was at HBO, and they decided for a variety of reasons not to make it. Um, but you know, they were like, "Well, what about? Did he have a relationship? Did he? You know what?" And you know, I, I wrote those scenes. And then I looked at him and I was like, I feel like I've seen all of these. Um, and I really fell in love with the claustrophobia of just seeing a guy do a job, seeing him become this sort of, you know, Kafka character who's just here to do this. And the more he does it, the more it matters to him. There's a, there is a lovely sort of sense of austerity throughout the, the film in terms of, uh, of the locations and the way that, that, that uh, the production designer is working for you. Um, I, I wonder if you want to talk a little bit about your, that process. Yeah, you know, I mean, I guess I always feel like you need to create a language for your movie. And for us, we needed two languages, one to deal with the flashbacks and one to deal with the main storyline that... that that Dan Jones goes through and in dealing, you know, so when dealing with <clears throat> the main sort of storyline, you know, we, we couldn't, we were shooting in New York city cause they had a tax kind of benefit for us. And we knew that we would be able to get a really great cast and we had 56 speaking roles, I think. So being in New York made sense for a lot of reasons, but we, we couldn't find, the things that we needed and and we were able to figure out a way by stealing money from other people um, to, to build a lot. Our line producer had just finished a TV show and some of the carpenters were still around so they built us some really great sets. Um, so I'm grateful to whatever TV show that is. They should really get a credit on the movie. Um, <clears throat> but you know, I think you, you screw yourself when you go out thinking, and you know, you've obviously made a lot of movies, and if you go out thinking you can accomplish an aesthetic that you're not going to be able to do, you spend all of your time, you know, being a slave to a technocrane. Um, and so, Igel Brilled, my cinematographer, and I talked about Alan Pakula movies and the simplicity of those and the elegance of those. And, and how to shoot scenes where there's just going to be a lot of dialogue. And that was the main body of it. And then I found this crazy fort out in Queens um, that we turned into Thailand and then other black sites. Um, and that was like a different movie. And Igel and I decided that all of that would be handheld, um, that we would use uncoded lenses and chase flares and make that more of a thing that existed in Dan Jones's mind because it's the images that are conjured up by these emails. The process of, of um, 
being someone who's 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 a wonderful wordsmith and makes you know you know some wonderful screenplays into um, being a director uh, in this way, has that been something that has given you any surprises? Have you or do you feel like you sort of this is what you've been doing all along? You've been gearing into this direction. Thank you for saying that about the writing part. Um, you know, I, I actually directed television commercials before I was a screenwriter. And I think if I even look at my own life, I think my inability to draw had a lot to do, <laughs> had a lot to do with my desire to write that I couldn't, that was the easiest way for me to express myself. Um, but that being said, and this goes back all the way to Contagion, I remember working on a scene with Steven Soderbergh on Contagion and he had sent me off to teach Kate Winslet a scene that had a lot of technical information. And at one point, Kate left out a sentence or two, but raised an eyebrow. And somehow her eyebrow raise was exactly what I had written, but a lot better. Um, and so I think the, the great thing about this was when you're working with people like John Hamm and Adam and Annette, you realize that you can cut some things because they're just so good. Um, and I, you know, I, I knew that I wasn't going to be in a situation like Contagion or like a Bourne movie where I got to change locations every 20, 30 pages to escalate the story that my, my new locations had to be new actors that we needed to bump into Ted Levine and that we needed to watch John Hamm go from, from friend to antagonist. Um, and so there were things that I'd written in there that, that worked. And then there were things that were way too wordy and, and we'd get on set and you just try and, and, and save your ears so that you can continue to hear what you wrote. So did you use quite a lot of improvisation with the cast? Did you allow them to kind of be flexible with the material or, or, or it was a case of you kind of condensing while you were rehearsing? Well, I don't think we didn't improvise at all because it was so much about, um, you know, getting the facts right. There were times when, and Annette really likes to rehearse, which was great. Um, there were times where we would rehearse and we would realize that there was a piece of language that was too obscure or it was illusory to something that we really weren't going to cover anymore in the movie. So we would cut that out. And we rehearsed a fair amount, but the other thing that I did on this that I've never had the opportunity to do on another film is I had table reads for a year. Um, I had just done a play in New York, and so I'd become a big fan of the table read. And hearing these things out loud um, was both visually stimulating to me, but also you could hear the redundancy, you could hear when you were lingering in a scene for way too long. Um, so there were, there were revelations that came through that process. I mean, it's, it's an extraordinarily dense, um, uh, dialogue and, 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 you know, narrative and, you know, complex, you know, themes that you're trying to put across. And yet, um, the performances are universally brilliant. No one's, no one's showing off, no one's stealing anything and it feels totally authentic and believable. Uh, that's a real, you know, highly kind of skilled juggling act you've done there. And, uh, well, I want to congratulate you on it. Thanks.
On, on behalf of the 56 people who actually said the lines, thank you. Um, yeah, look, you know, again, if you have a movie about that involves people speaking, um, you got to start there, you know, and, and what A.B. Kaufman, our casting director, and I talked about from the very first day is that was going to be it. And, you know, when you, you know, I should say that everyone in my cast worked for scale, um, you know, and that changes the vibe entirely um, when nobody has a big fancy trailer and, and everybody knows that and they're coming there to help tell a story, you know. I think there were a couple of really gratifying moments like the scene with Adam and Corey Stoll in the middle of the movie I knew when I wrote it that that was the pivot in the movie. We've seen this guy in a windowless room for the first half of the movie. And then I found this location, which actually was a law firm. And I was like, this is great. He goes from a windowless room to a room that is entirely made out of windows. Um, and that that's the one time in the script that I, and I had, I had written it this way, that I wanted to cross the line. That this is the moment where he now flirts with the idea of of going public, um, but when I when I showed up in the morning, you know, and I'm sure you've had this experience. You have a six page scene, and you worry about what you've dropped on your actors. And so I divided it up into three acts, and I said, you know, we'll just do these two pages. And they looked at me like I was a crazy person, and they're like, no, it's it's like a theater scene. We're going to do all of it. And I'm like, every you're going to do all of it every take. Um, and they said, yeah, that's, otherwise we're never going to find the rhythm. And it's, it's, you know, it makes you look really good when you have that going on. You know, you can just move the camera wherever you need to. And, um, you know, and, and so that was a really great day. There was a day where it's the scene where Adam is sitting in the hallway and Annette and Ted Levine are sort of discussing his future and they come out and Ted throws him a look, and Ted said to me, I want to say something to him. And I'm like, okay, what do you want to say? And he said, well, I want to say not everyone has the luxury of living in a black and white world. And I said, okay. And I don't know how you are, but sometimes it's fun if you know that someone's going to ad lib to not warn the other people. So you want to see what they're going to do. So he does that, and the scene crashes and burns because everybody looks at each other like, well, that's not, why is he saying that? And Annette pulls me aside and says, if you don't want him to say that, like, tell him not to. And I said, well, I, I understand what my job is, but he's here, and he's trying to, you know, he wants to contribute to the scene, so, you know, and she said, well, if, if he's going to say that, I've got to defend Dan. I'm going to go on for a while. And she was really worked up about it. And I was like, all right. It's just, but it was so gratifying to see how passionate they all were about, you know, inhabiting, inhabiting these parts. And when you see that, you really feel like you're going to be okay. Uh, you, you said that everyone was working for scale. The implication of that is that you that it was hard to find the budget to make the film. Do you, do you think there was opposition because of the subject matter, or, or were there other reasons that that it was hard to find? 
Yeah, well, look, I mean, I'm, in this situation, I'm always tempted to ask the audience how many people here have tried to get something made that they actually care about. Um, you know, it's hard. And we started this movie at HBO, and they were really wonderful about it until, you know, they got into this deal with AT&T. And I don't know if it was the politics of the movie. And I really don't. Um, so I'm not here to diss them because what they did at the end was really great. They gave it back, um, which they didn't have to do. But Lena Motto, who is a fantastic guy there, called me and said, I don't think we're going to be able to make your movie, and I want you to get it back before we get into this negotiation so it's not an asset of the company. And they very quickly moved to do that. And I'm incredibly, I mean, we thank them in the credits. So I don't say this out of, out of hostility. But then we went out into the wilderness, and nobody, I mean nobody, wanted to make the movie. And, you know, the foreign salespeople were like, nobody cares about American politics. Um, and it was really, it was beyond discouraging. It was, it, was, it was infuriating, really. Like, so we're not allowed to tell stories that we care about or that we think are important. And, you know, fortunately, I, I had dinner with this friend of mine, named Eddie Moretti um, one night, and I told him about the script, and he said, can I read it? And he called me the next morning and said, you need to make this movie. And Eddie was one of the founders of Vice, and they said, we can make it for $4 million. And we had a budget from HBO for $18 million and a 50-day shoot. And I was like, I don't know that I can do that. And Eddie then... Um, is my my hero. He quit Vice and went out on his own and said, they're going to give you $4 million. I'm starting my own company. I will give you $4 million. Can you do it for eight? Um, I said, yeah. And so we did it for eight in 26 days. Well, it's very impressive. But, you know, I, I really appreciate that. But because of who all of you are, like, I teach at Sundance every year, and there are kids who make movies in 15 days for a million, like, you know, and my hat is off to them. You know, if anything, I've, I've got more of an appreciation than ever before for people who are passionate about a story and just figure out a way to get it done. Um, the incredible cast that you've got, could you talk a little bit about the, your casting process and how, how you kind of found uh, that cast? Again, you know, it, it gets easier. Like when you have Adam and Annette, um, it's easier to call someone and go, do you want to be in a movie with Adam and Annette? Um, and John was someone who I'd known a little bit. Um, and I thought he would be great for Dennis McDonough because I needed someone who could kind of be this go-between complicated character. Um, and then it just was, you know, really great. Matthew Reese was someone who I spoke to early on, and he, you know, wanted to help tell the story. And, you know, the same is true of Maura Tierney and Jen Morrison. And, you know, all of these people were just willing to show up for two or three days and put their ego aside because they, they wanted to help. And... You know, I don't know that that'll happen again, but it makes your life a lot easier when 
when that's, you know, then that's the attitude. Um, but to answer your question, calling and begging. <laughs> uh, in terms of the, the, the way that the film um, might be received, um, uh, uh, do you have a, a, a sense of whether there is going to be some embarrassment politically as a result of it? Or do you, you, know, do you think that it's going to you know, hit, hit the target that you're aiming at? It's interesting, you know, the other night I was asked a question about, you know, there are very sophisticated people who might say, yeah, well, your movie is very black and white and there's a gray area. And, you know, my question is, there's got to be a moment in any endeavor where there's not a gray area, you know, where you start a country and you decide we're going to stand for something. And that thing is never gray. You know, it's an idea. And the reason why I put the, the thing at the end from George Washington, and I will now bore you with a very brief history lesson, um, but, uh, you know, that, that's known as Washington's order. And where it comes from is during the Revolutionary War, the British hired a lot of German mercenaries to fight the war for them. Um, because who the hell would want to come here and freeze and, and fight? Um, other than German mercenaries. And they were in Pennsylvania, and the Revolutionary Guard captured a bunch of them. And the British had notoriously captured and tortured, um, and you're Scottish, so this isn't offensive at all. I know, I know, I'm kidding. Um, but the British had, had tortured um, American soldiers. And so there was a desire for revenge. Um, and George Washington wrote in and said what is in that quote at the end, which is um, that, you know, that we don't do this. We're starting a country to not be that. And that that's the point of this war. So if we do that, we're turning into exactly what we are not. Now, I realize that American history is filled with times where we have been brutal to people. But that order to me was a really significant moment in my understanding of this story. And, you know, it's important to even think about some other points in the movie. Like when Dan Jones was sent off to do this, it was 14 to 1. It wasn't a democratic, you know, kind of thing. It was a bipartisan vote because the view of both the Democrats and the Republicans in the Senate was whatever was on those tapes was so f***ed up that we needed to do, you know, a full report on it. Um, and so they sent off Dan Jones to do this. And so, yeah, you know, the CIA has pushed back. Um, I am sure that they will send out their people to sort of say this did work like they did when the report came out. Um, but when you talk to people in law enforcement and do the research that I did and talk to people in the military, nobody believes that, you know, that torture is the way that you get information and beyond that. But, you know, when I talked to Ali Soufan, who's in the movie, he, you know, said to me straight up, like, this isn't what I do. I do rapport building and it works. So, you know, um, 
But what it took was someone like Dan Jones to go and spend seven years and and piece this story together. And um, he's actually here tonight, so I just want Dan to stand up so that he can be acknowledged. Dan, wherever you are. You've got an incredible source in him in terms of being able to you know, get direct access to what the, the sort of epicenter of, of the report was doing. Obviously, you've got less access to the report. Um, your, your research process, is it worth talking a little bit more about, about how you go into the, uh, you know, something as complex as this and, and, and extract what you need to get? Yeah, well, you know, the report was 6,700 pages and... You know, Dan, as the movie depicts, was tasked with getting it down to an executive summary, and that's about 500 pages, and it's pretty heavily redacted. Um, so I've only read that. I was not, you know, I, I, I don't have a security clearance. Um, so I had that, and I had open source reporting from a lot of great journalists like Jane Mayer and Jim Risen, who had covered this. I spoke to you know, Senator Udall, I spoke to Senator Whitehouse, Senator Levin, um, a lot of other people who were involved, a lot of military interrogators, Navy SEALs who have gone to Sears School. Um, so I, I did a lot of research like that, but the report itself was really kind of the, the inspiration for this. And, you know, getting from 500 pages to a 120-page script is is still a lot and there are you know there were difficult choices along the way but what I wanted to do is pick about three or four detainees who I felt would allow the audience to really understand how this program started and evolved um it's it's a it's a strange question this but did anyone ever come knocking on your door saying would you please avoid this subject no you know I mean I guess I feel like, you know, I really believe in the First Amendment. I mean, I don't know what else to say. I guess, you know, I think we're supposed to use our, our talents and this incredible medium to, to try and get the truth out. And, you know, if they're going to come and take me away for doing that, then I should be, I'll, I'll go. One of the things that I got, you know, very strongly from the film, that uh, despite uh, it, it being critical of, of of a lot, it's actually a very. It feels like a very patriotic movie. Yeah. Um, well, I, I'm glad to hear you say that. And I mean, that was my intent. You know, one of the big, like I've always liked movies that don't put a bow on the ending. And you know, I sort of stole the ending of this from Serpico. And there's a line in Serpico. Um, where he says, are you giving me this medal for what I did or because I got shot in the face? Um, and the end of Serpico, as I recall, is him walking away. And I sort of felt that way about the end of this movie where, on one hand, I hope people feel like our system, when populated by people with integrity, can function. But then look at the cost that this took and how close it came to not working and the fact that we did it in the first place. 
And if you, you know, have read the news in the, in the last couple of days, we're learning about a new horrible thing that the CIA did um, in our name. So, like, I guess I want people to feel patriotic, but patriotic in the way that we've been given this really, you know, great system and great opportunity, and, you know, and it will be lost if we don't make sure that people like Dan, you know, populate the system. Sergio Leone has this great line um, about America being something the rest of the world created and that it's where the rest of the world pins their hopes that there's a thing called America. And then he goes on to say, but you got to be careful because the rest of the world could decide that that's not true anymore and they could invent a new America. And I think we're exactly at that point. Well, I, I think everyone here will, will probably agree that uh, that the, your film is pushing back hard in uh, in, in the direction of, of uh, many of the virtues that you that you are holding up for uh, for this country. Thanks. Yeah. Um, congratulations! It's a Thanks, great movie. David. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another DGA Q and A. If you'd like to hear more, you can find past episodes of The Director's Cut wherever you listen to podcasts. Stay tuned in the coming weeks for more great Q&As with directors James Mangold and Casey Lemons. And be sure to subscribe, rate, and review us. We'd love to hear your feedback, and you can help fellow cinephiles find the show. Thanks again for listening, and have a great week. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally. 